Thank you for this evening. We do thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your, your word. And Lord, from our discussion before this even started, Lord, that you will bring revival back into our country, Lord, that your churches will bow their knees in, in, in repentance and that you will move in a strong and mighty way in this country. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 27, starting at verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, that crooked servant, serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, sing you unto her a vine vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. I water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set a set the briars and thorns against me in battles. I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, he that may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come to Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Hath has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that were slain by him? In, the per, in, okay. in measure, when it shoots forth, you will debate with it. He stays his rough wind by, in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit that, to take away his sin when he makes all the stones the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in, the, in sunder. The groves and images shall not stand. Yet the defense city shall be desolate and the inhabitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed and there shall he lay down and consume the branches thereof. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is as a people that with, of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on him, and he that formed them will, will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off the channel of the river to the stream of the Egypt, and, shall be, and you shall be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and there shall come which are ready to perish of the hand of Assyria and the out east outcast <laughs> in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount in Jerusalem. All right. Here we're looking at in that day, that's a reference to the end days. <laughs> The tribulation period. So anytime you see that, well, most of the time when you see that in the Old Testament, you're talking about the, the end, uh, end of time. So it says, in that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. All right. One of the things that they talk about here is that Leviathan seems to be a picture of Babylon in some cases, but Leviathan is actually a creature described in Job 20, uh, 41. 
Uh, and in Job 41, it talks about something that very much appears to be something much like a plesiosaurus-type uh, animal. It's a large swimming thing that, it, uh, and if you read it through there, it sounds very much like a, uh, like a dinosaur would be described. And so we look at that, and we see the Leviathan being mentioned in, in Job 3, verse 8, Job 41, 1 through 34, Psalm 74, 14, Psalm 104, 26, and right here in Isaiah. <laughs> Uh, very, quite often, and it always refers to some type of sea monster in its literal format. And uh, in our day, there's a lot of things that don't really make sense. Uh, if you read the, especially the NIV, they try to call, they try to call it a crocodile. It doesn't quite fit <laughs> uh, when you read the description of it. Uh, what it is, we don't know exactly. I believe, that, I believe that it's a swimming dinosaur because I, I fully believe that God created the dinosaurs on day, day five and day six of the creation world, and they lived with man. So I have no problem with them being a plesiosaur or something very similar. And uh, you know, a lot of people will point out there's no, the dragon uh, dinosaur is not mentioned in the Bible. Well, of course it isn't because the, the word wasn't even created until the 1800s. So there's no way the word dinosaur could be in the Bible. But we do have something that very much sounds like it in dragons. And so we see this, and it says that the Lord, with his sword and, a sword and great strong sword, shall punish Leviathan. Now, this is one of the reasons in this particular one we believe that it's a symbol of Babylon. Because if we read the book of Revelation, Babylon arises up and takes authority in the new world order without the church. And Babylon represents all of false religion. Okay, Babylon started with Nimrod in Genesis 11, and is all false religions come out of that? And we've said this before: God has chosen Jerusalem to be His chief city, and apparently, from what we see in the Bible, Satan has chosen Babylon. Now we've got different people, and over the different years and periods of decades in Ecclesiastes in eschatology or study of end times, they've placed a spiritual Babylon in Rome, and they, you know, they say you know, Babylon's going to rise up. I've always believed that it was Babylon that was going to rise up, and as we're seeing our day and age going along, it appears that it will literally be Babylon. Could it still be a spiritual Babylon? Yes, but I really think that it's going to be the literal, because that's where Satan has made his headquarters all through history. Uh, well, I argue with somebody who says that it's going to be Rome in the center of everything, a spiritual Babylon. Yeah, I'm not, it's not worth the argument. Uh, whatever God does is going to be God's, God's thing. Uh, but when you look at it and you look at what happens, Babylon is Babylon all through the scripture. All right. And so we see this rising up. And it says God will judge. And when you look at the book of Revelation... You see God pouring out judgment upon this world during the end days. Israel is going to be reestablished, just as it talks later on in this chapter. And the world, the world system comes against it. And God pours out his wrath on this world. 
the seven trumpets, the seven the vials, and the seven bowls that really destroy the world. And we've talked about this back when we studied Revelation. When we look at all the death and destruction that God sends to the world in the book of Revelation, we know that at least 66% of the population dies. That's a lot of people. All right? We have a, something like four and a half trillion people on the world or something that the number keeps growing so fast I can't keep track of it. That means at that number, 300 trillion people will die. That's a lot of people, or three trillion, not, not 300 trillion. <laughs> three trillion people will die. Two out of every third of three people. This is the judgment that God sends upon the world system. And it says, you know, and this is really his, his experience. It says that sore and great and strong sword, God moves against the world. And what's his purpose? We've talked about this several times. His purpose during that period is not to destroy the world. It is to draw the world to him. And yet they will reject him. They will not acknowledge God moving. And we see this even in our day as God brings more and more weather instances to us you know what do we what do we have people go it's climate change <laughs> i really believe that it's god bringing judgment against this world in a strong way it's not man-made climate change it's god saying pay attention to me and god always starts out in a gentle push let me make things a little difficult for you we'll send some famine we'll send some lack of rain we'll send we'll send the storms whatever and as people continue to reject him things get harder. Egypt, when they would not release Israel, God poured on his judgment on them. You know, 10 plagues and devastated Egypt. When we look at the plagues in Revelation, we see the same thing from God, pouring out weather problems, economic problems, battle problems, all these different things. You look through each one of these and say, wow, you know, won't people recognize that this is God? Nope. You know, especially in our day, we're too sophisticated. <laughs> you know, can't be God. We we can try to make an explanation for everything. Yeah, yeah, we can we can try to predict it. Most of their predictions don't work anyway. But you know, we see here judgment, and it says that crooked serpent, that bad system, the world system. And when we see the word for Babylon, we know that we're looking at the world system. And Babylon, again, whether it's literal Babylon or a spiritual Babylon, it's the world system set against God's rules. And we all have been there. We've seen it. And as when we follow God, we get to walk in his ways. And we see the benefits and the blessings of walking in his way as opposed to what we walked in in the world. You know, it's kind of sad sometimes when I talk to people and they're just so set on walking in the world. And I'm going, don't you understand that <laughs> That leads to destruction. You're, are you, and I've even asked people, are you happy walking this way? No, no, but there's nothing better. It's as good a system as I can think of or, or see. I'm going, just turn your life over to God. Now, and that's the wonderful thing. The more we turn our life over to God, the better things run, the, the smoother things are. And even when we do have bad things, we're looking to God and say, God, you're still in control, and you, you've got a plan, and he gives us a peace that passes understanding. And, a, and an internal joy, and we can be able to look at what does God have in, in store for us. I was listening to the pastor just the other day. He says he's already written, written the message for his, for his funeral. Yeah. You know, uh, 
And I got thinking about that. That might be not a bad idea. <laughs> to, to do my own funeral and, and put it on, put it on uh, the, the computer or something so it can be played. You know, the songs I want, you know, the, my message of salvation and hope. Because I want to make sure that I get what I want on that. I really do. This, you know, I don't care what they do with my body. <laughs> but I want a celebrate, celebratory ser- service that says, I went home. And I want God preached, and I want people to know that Jesus is in control. And this is something that's important. How do we look at things? Do we put our own view on things that follows the world, or do we look at what God says? And we were talking about that just before. You know, how many times do we get worried about things and stuff, and the Bible tells us they're going to happen? Does that mean we just get, you know, uh, tired and say, well, I'm not going to pray about it, I'm not going to change? No. But at the same time, we know this world has got to fall apart. Now, I don't want it to fall apart any sooner than it has to. But we walk a very fine line. I'm not going to worry about what's going on in this world. When I look at the falling apart of our country, we're reaping what we have sown. Does that mean I'm going to just be fatalistic and say it's going to happen? No, I'd like to have another great awakening in this country. Having the churches pray for revival, I'd love to see revival. But by the same token, if it doesn't happen, it's not going to surprise me either (laughs) because of where we're at. And, you know, especially when you look at the bulk of the churches that are rejecting God and rejecting God's word. And this is a sad place that our country is in. The amazing thing is America used to send out more missionaries to the world than any place else, and now we receive more missionaries than any place else in the world. Because the churches are, you know, in the other parts of the world are looking at American Christians and saying, what a bunch of weak, pathetic uh, non-Christians because of the message that is being brought in, mo- in so many churches. You know, the prosperity message, you've got to be wealthy, healthy, and wise to, to be following God, and, you know, which is exactly what Job's friends kept trying to tell him. Well, Job, obviously, you must be an awful, terrible person because, look, you just lost everything. And that's not what God does. God blesses his followers. And Job had a great peace in what was going on. Now, after being hammered for a long period of time by these guys, he got a little, little down in the mouth. And that can happen to us. This is why we've got to be careful. Who do we listen to for counsel? Are we hearing godly counsel? Are we giving godly counsel? Because ungodly counsel can wear somebody down. You know, we were looking at David yesterday, and the second time, is, you know, everybody's telling him, hey, Saul's been put in your hand. Kill him. Yeah. How many other times did that happen? We don't know, but the two that we're told about. But, you know, how long, how long do we stand with ungodly counsel before we finally slip if we're, if we're not careful? And God will battle that unrighteous system. And our job is to follow him, be hidden in him. To, to follow his direction. And that can be hard. <laughs> it can be very hard sometimes. Especially if you have family that's not giving you godly advice. Or, lo- or even worse, lost family members who just don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. And so we end up with this whole problem of following God and focusing on him. Which is why we need to be careful. And I've told everybody so many times, We want to be friends with people in the world, but they better not be our best friends. Because if they're our best friends, they're going to lead us astray. 
You know, don't, they're not somebody you hang out with. And one of the things we find is we are Christians, we get less and less lost friends. Because we hang out at church, we go to church, and if we talk about God often enough and, and enough, people start staying away from us on their own. You know, it's not that we get rid of them necessarily. They just don't want to talk to us. <laughs> you know, you know, you'll hear things like, all you ever do is talk about God. Well, all I did was talk about him once in our conversation. That, you're talking about God all the time. Uh, well, man, if you, if you think I talk about God a lot when I'm around you, you should come to see me when I'm at church. Uh, but, you know, this is the problem that we have. God's system is totally separate from the world system. Satan has a whole bunch of lies that he puts out there, and for every truth that God has, Satan will give us a whole bunch of lies. You know, God says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Satan puts out a whole bunch of religions, including no religion. Okay? Uh, but he'll say, do good works, or do this, or do that, or follow this, or, you know, all kinds of different alternatives so that people can pick and choose what feels good to them. And the battle is coming. It's a great battle in that day. <laughs> Verse 2 says, In that day, sing you unto her a vineyard of red wine, and the Lord do keep it. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it, and I will keep it night and day. So here we see God, and we're going to find out as we go in there. He's talking really about Israel. He's going to give Israel. In that day, when we get to the end times, God stops the church age. All right? Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. And for a moment in time, Israel was put on the shelf, basically, and said, Okay, Israel, you did not do what I wanted you to do. We're now going to let the Gentiles <laughs> and the church age rule. And we're in that period of time where the church gets to evangelize. All through the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to evangelize. They were supposed to bring God to the people. They were, to, they were actually, as a nation, to be the priest to the people, to the, to the world. And what did they do? God has chosen us. We're going to be separate from everybody else. And if they don't do things our way and become one of us, we're isolated. And you know, we read through the Pentateuch and where, Jesus, where God says, and this will be for all people, your strangers, your foreigners. You know, he talked about the sacrifices, and it becomes very clear in the, in the Pentateuch that God wanted all people to be able to come to his, his tabernacle, his temple, and worship and sacrifice. And the Jews got so bad that by the time of Jesus, they had a great big sign in the temple saying, no Gentiles beyond this point on penalty of death. Okay, no Jew, no Gentile could come in and worship God. They had to become a Jew to be able to worship God. And that was never God's intention. And yet, he's gently working with them and saying, pay attention. We read through, and it's very clear that God wanted Gentiles in, in, in his family. And the Jews isolated themselves. So when Jesus died and was resurrected, he says, okay, Israel, you're put off to... Now, this does not mean he replaces Israel. <laughs> Okay? That's called replacement theology, and there's a lot of Christians out there that believe that the church has replaced Israel. All the promises, all the blessings of Israel belong to the Christian, and that is not true. 
We get a lot of their blessings, we get a lot of their things, but not, we have not replaced them. At the moment of the end days, in that day, God will take the church out. We will be raptured. The church will be taken out. All those that believe in Jesus Christ and are clothed in Jesus Christ will be taken from this world. And God will say, okay, Israel, now we're back to you. The church is gone. And for seven years, God deals with Israel. And the world will attack Israel, just as they've always done. And we've talked about this as well. Satan has tried to destroy Israel from the very beginning of its foundation back when it was just 12 tribes. <laughs> He's always tried to destroy it. Why? Because God says that I, the world will be blessed through Abraham's seed. So Satan has tried to destroy Israel because if he could destroy Israel, Abraham's seed would not be there to be able to bless the world. Having failed to destroy Israel before Jesus' birth, he is now trying to eliminate Israel ever since because Israel is the entire end days focus. So if Satan can get rid of Israel for the end day focus, he can say, God, see, you did, you, you're not, you're not omni, omni, uh, uh, omniscient because <laughs> you didn't know that this was going to happen, that I was going to do this. And God says, no, you're not going to be victorious in any of that. But this is the whole plan. This is why Satan is attacking Israel all the time. Because he says before it was to try to keep Jesus from being born. And now it's to try to keep them from being a nation and a country for the end time prophecies to be fulfilled. And God says in those end time prophecies, I'm going to protect my people. Many of them, many, many of them are going to die before he puts them into protective you know, protective custody, let's say protective custody, you know, says, okay, I'm putting my hand over you and nobody's going to touch you now for the rest of this time. And this is what this whole thing is. says, in that day, sing unto her the, a vineyard of red wine. And this idea of red wine literally is the idea of delight, desire, pleasantness. A vineyard that's so pleasant. And God has said, in that day, Israel, his vineyard his keeping. God has had a special relationship with the Jews from the, from the beginning. Why? Because he chose, <laughs> because he chose Abraham. <laughs> Not that Abraham was really all that, all that great. Yes, he followed God. Yes, he believed in God. But it was by grace that Abraham was chosen. Out of however many millions or what it was that was alive during that period of time, I don't know. But Abraham was chosen. Now, he was listening to God, and had, he was from the line of Eber, and Eber was in battle with Nimrod. If we go back through history, Nimrod and, Eber, and, and Eber were representing the two sides, God and not God. And this is why I say Nimrod brought in all the false, all the false religions really have their roots in Babylon and Nimrod. And we see this process going on. And God says, in that day... I'm going to take care of my, my garden. He says, and I will keep it. And I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it, and I will keep it night and day. God's protection of Israel is very clear. You know, the amazing thing, Israel, not a nation for almost 2,000 years, then becomes a nation again and keeps themselves intact. You know, it's an amazing thing to have been able to stay as a Jewish people 
all those years. And stay fear, fairly pure in during that period of time because many of them took, for, took what God says and says, you know, ha, have your join with your own people. And they kept themselves together. They kept, they kept their religion together with no homeland. And then God finally gives them a homeland. Now, there's a lot of people who claim that it wasn't God that gave it because the England is the one that put them there, including many Jewish people <laughs> claim that it wasn't God who put them there in their nation. Uh, I don't know why they could come up with that idea. Just because God uses other people to do it does not make it any different. How did he return them from captivity in Babylon? Uh, Cyrus signed a decree sending them back. No different than what happened in, in 48. You know, just different, different government, different person. Still a degree from a government that says you get your homeland back. So we look at this and say there's nothing different about the two. So there, I really truly believe that God put them in their land. And then when we look at this, we see God definitely fulfilling this set of scripture. So we look at this and we go in verse uh, 4. Fury is not in me who would set the... Who would set the briars and the thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them all together. Basically, God's saying, who could, who could oppose me? <laughs> yeah. And yet Satan continuously seems to think that he can oppose God. Yeah. I don't know. He's demented. He's insane. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting something different to happen. And Satan has done that for thousands of years now. He keeps doing the same thing against God and expects something different to happen. And even though God has said it won't happen, he keeps trying to thwart God's will. And like I say, he's trying to destroy Israel because if he can, then God didn't know what he was talking about. And he hasn't been successful yet. And he won't be successful because every time we look at it, God is fulfilling exactly what he said was going to happen. And he says, you know, God says, you want to put things up against me? I'll just burn them. You know, how do you get through a briar, briar patch? Well, you pretty much use a bulldozer to plow through it, like God said the first one, or you burn it. And God says, he gives you both of them. You know, I'll just go through it or, and I'll burn it. And so God is showing his power. Well, let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Or refuge. God says, take hold of my refuge and make peace with me. Right now, that's what the church is doing. And we get to be able to grab hold of God's strength. And the wonderful thing about grabbing hold of God's strength is there's nothing that can oppose it. This is why we read through Psalms and God says, I'm your shelter, I'm your strong tower, I'm your protector, uh, rest in me. There's nothing greater than to be able to rest in God, knowing that he's in charge. Even when things don't look like he's in charge, he's still in charge. <laughs> and I love that aspect of it. And that's what gives great peace. God, uh, everything looks like it's going crazy, but, but you're still in charge. You've got a plan. Yes, God, all these crazy people have done some really stupid things, and it looks really bad, but you are in charge. I'm sure all through the book of Judges, everybody would look and say, God, how can, you, how can you let all these things happen? Yes, the people are doing dumb things and deserve it, but God, we're being hurt at the same time, and God has never promised his people that they aren't going to get hurt in the consequences of sin. 
because this world has fallen. And we need to be ready for those and say, God, you still have a reason, you have a purpose. And this is where Romans 8.28 comes in. All things work together for good for, for those who are called according to the purpose of God. God, I don't know what the plan is, but you've got a plan. God, my, it may not be good for me, but you've got a plan that something good is going to happen. And we see this, and he says, just make peace. You know, the peace with God. That, you know, in, in the Greek, that the word peace means that serene feeling, knowing our destiny with God. You know, ultimately, our destiny with God as a Christian is to go to heaven. No matter what happens on this world, our destiny is heaven. And it's been said, and I've said this many years myself, you know, for a Christian, this world is as close to hell as we ever get. And it's not hell. You know, it's not even near hell. The sad thing is, for those that are destined for hell, this is as close to heaven as they get. And what a sad thought that is. It's bad enough thinking that this is, you know, a taste of hell for us, but just this is as close to heaven as they're going to get? That's depressing. You know, and God said, will you make peace with me? Will you make peace with me? You know, grab hold of his strength and have that peace. God tells us to cast all our cares on him for he cares for us. And it's wonderful just to be able to cast our cares on him and say, God, you're, I see all kinds of crazy things, but God, I'm going to trust you. And just live at peace. And say, God, you know, uh, everything looks bad, but you're in charge. And be able to just relax. I love just being able to relax in God. And you'd be able to look at people and go, wow. You know. And you might even say, you know, like I've said many times, it doesn't feel like anything bad's happened to me. And yet if I look at very closely from the world's point of view, lots of bad things have happened. But because I'm resting in God... <laughs> It's, hard, it's very hard to notice those things sometimes. Verse 6, He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. He will cause them to come from Jacob to take root. Uh, now for Isaiah, this could be two different events. They could be when Cyrus sends the people back and they come back to Israel which I believe, remember we've talked about in prophecy, there's usually an immediate prophecy fulfillment and the long-term prophecy. So I believe it's both. It's you're going to be returned from your captivity in Babylon because Isaiah's getting ready to face that idea of the captivity in Babylon. But it's also the end days when Jacob returns to Israel because it says, and they will blossom it's an amazing fa fact that right now in Israel, they feed Europe. Okay, they feed Europe with, their, with, the, with the produce that they produce in that little country about the size of uh, New Jersey. They feed most of Europe. God has caused them to blossom, to produce, to be a great jewel in that area. And that's also part of what's making them a target. And from what I've heard, they just found a, one of the largest oil deposits underneath their, un, underneath their land, so they can be uh, not needing other people. The Dead Sea area has so much minerals and everything, they don't have to worry about the rest of the world. God has given them great wealth, great abundance. 
and says just what he did. He's going to cause them to blossom and bud. They're one of the technological giants of our, of our day. It's just amazing when we read this and we look and say, this is what God said. And we see it coming true, that God's making them blossom. And they are filling the face of the world. Now, I think that part will be the millennial kingdom. Because who's going to be left primarily at the end of the millennial kingdom will be the Jews that God has protected. Because most, the rest of the world, for the most part, is going to have taken the mark of the beast. And once you've taken the mark of the beast, you will not go into the millennial kingdom. You will be put into Hades to await judgment, because that is it. You're done. There will be a handful of Gentiles, because you've got 144,000 Jewish evangelists being, you know, preaching the gospel message. There will be a handful of people that are non-Jews, but mostly it's going to be Jews entering into the millennial kingdom. And because that is God's focus during that period of time. We as the church come back with Jesus to reign during the millennial kingdom. And so we see they're going to fill the face of the world. There will be sacrifices during the millennial kingdom, mostly the peace offerings and the thanksgiving offerings, which we talked about a long time ago in the book of Leviticus, because there's not just one offering that's made in the temple. Now, there will not be a sin offering because Jesus is the sin offering. But there will be Thanksgiving offerings and, and, and those type of offerings in the Millennial Kingdom and quite possibly beyond. We don't know beyond when the new heaven and earth because God doesn't talk a lot about the new heaven and the new earth. But during the Millennial Kingdom, he does talk about sacrifices. And we've got to understand as Gentiles, we don't really understand that there's more than one type of offering that's made in the, te in the temple. So there will be offerings being made during that period of time. And it says in you know, verse 7, He has smitten him as he smote those that smote him, or hath he smitten those that smote him, or is this, he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? So in other words, he says, has he smote those that smote him? And I really think this is talking about Jesus. He could, have, he could go through and destroy everybody, including the Jews. All right. the, when, we, when we talk about who killed Jesus... It's kind of an interesting topic that people will come up with. And for many, many, you know, for a millennia or two, they were saying that the Jews killed Jesus. Well, yes, the Jews had part in killing Jesus. They're the one that gave him over to Pilate to, to kill. And I've always looked at it. They actually performed the job of the priest. They offered the sacrificed lamb to be offered. The Romans actually killed him. We put him on the cross because of our sin. And even more than that, it said it pleased the Father to do this. Why? Because he knew the long run was that we were going to become his children. So we look at this, and it comes all the way down to God putting him on the cross because of our sin, using the Jews as the priest and the Romans as the executioners. Everybody has a part in the death of Jesus. And it says he, hasn't, he isn't going to smite them according to the way they smote him. Because he could go to the Jews and say, ah, now is my time. You guys put me to death, and now I'm going to make you pay. Granted, it's not the same group, but you know, what, did, what did the leader say? Upon us and our descendants, let this happen. And we look at this and say, you know, he says he's not going to treat them like that. He's not going to sl slaughter them. 
Verse 8 says, in measure when it shoots forth, you will debate with it. He stays his rough wind in that day of the east wind. You know, this idea of debate, strive with words. He goes, they shoot forth and will you debate? Will you strive with God? That's kind of interesting. Satan has desired to strive with God right from the beginning. He is attacked. Even when we talk about Adam and Eve, what did they do? They, they debated with God. You know, God says, have you, have you eaten of the fruit? And <laughs> Well, Adam was kind of interesting because he, he blamed both God and Eve. It's the woman you gave me, God. So if you, number one, if you hadn't given it, it was her fault. But if you hadn't given it to me, or to me, then none of this would have ever happened. So really, God, yeah, it's, you, pick, you pick who you want to blame, God, but it's your fault. What a demonic activity that statement was. You know, God, you're at fault. The world blames God frequently. Yeah. And it says, don't debate. And this is something even for us as Christians, we don't need to debate with the lost world about things, spiritual things. We don't need to debate with other Christians about things in the word. We can have discussions that are valuable discussions. And I've told you all, when I'm having a discussion with somebody, if they plant a flag in here and say, you've got to believe this or else, my discussion's over. I don't have anything really other than about three things that I have that strong an opinion on. And we've showed that with you. God's word is absolutely true. I will fight to the death over that because if it's not true, we have nothing to stand on. I will fight to the end that Jesus is the Son of God and God. And that he's the only way to, to the Father. That he died on the cross so that we can die and he rose from the dead. Outside of those three things, there's not a whole lot I will argue to the point of you've got to believe these things. As you all know, though, I have very strong opinions on certain things, and I have no problem voicing them and discussing them. But if somebody wants, you've got to believe this or else, no, I'm not going to go there. I'll tell you why I believe what I believe. You can tell me why you believe what you believe. And I have some great discussions with different, different really strong men of God and pastors and stuff where we may not disagree or we may not agree with everything. And we have some wonderful debates and, and point out the scriptures and everything. But as soon as you put that flag saying, you must believe this way or else, it's not worth it. Yes, the Bible has to be true. And I've said this over and over. If there's anything not true in this word in the Bible, how can I trust any of it? And that's literally the way I am. If there's anything in here that's not trustworthy, I can't trust God for my future. And that's why it's important for us to be able to say God's word is true. And we look at this and he says, you know, he's not going to go after. He's, go, he's not looking for debate. He stays the rough wind in that day with the east wind. God tempers his judgment. Because God could just say, okay, the world's over. Yeah, that's it. You guys are all done. And yet he's going to temper his judgment of the world during that period of time. He's tempered to the point where We've talked about two-thirds of the population die. He could take out the whole world, and he doesn't. Now, at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Satan goes one last hurrah to try to, to oppose God and sadly draws a lot of people into his camp, at the end of, can you picture this? At the end of a thousand-year reign with God ruling, 
He's restored long life. He's restored peace. He's restored, you know, righteous living pretty much. And Satan is able to rise up a rebellion against him at the end of the millennial kingdom. And, you know, really quick battle, he speaks and they're dead. <laughs> you know, uh, trying to battle God is not worth it. He always wins. And we as Christians learn that. You know, when we try to battle God, when he wants, something, wants us to do something, at least in my case, he always wins, or he makes my life so miserable that he's going to win because I'm going to give up. I may argue a long time. I don't argue near as long as I used to when I was younger. Uh, I think my record was six years. <laughs> uh, don't ever want to try to beat that record. I don't, I don't even want to go to days or weeks or months anymore. But God says, listen, obey. You know, he has a great mercy for us. Yeah. And it's an amazing, when we look at his grace and his mercy, it's just an amazing thing to look at how gracious he is and how merciful he is. When we deserve nothing but being destroyed because we won't bend our will to his will and he just gives us a nudge here, there, and everywhere <laughs> and kind of coerces us in one sense if we're, you know, but he's saying, I want you to give up. Yeah. What did he have to do to to Saul of Tarsus, knock him on the off his horse and blind him and talk to him directly. He hasn't quite had to do that to me yet. Uh, hopefully I don't get that stubborn. <laughs> but I've been stubborn in my own ways in many, in many things, and we've all been there. We've all been stubborn where God has had to do something. Maybe not as bad as, as Saul's <laughs> event, but smacking us around a little bit, giving us a lot of hard time. And... Uh, Verse 8, in measure, when it shoots forth, you will debate with it. He stays the rough wind. Verse 9, by this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, and groves and images shall not stand. And this is talking about that end time of the, the tribulation. Jacob is has been reproved through the seven years of tribulation. The, the trials of Jacob, the day of Jacob, the day of tribulation. It's got so many different names in the, in the scripture that Israel will be reproved. Doesn't mean that they're going to get away scot-free. They're going to have all kinds of problems. But he says, I will purge you. And this idea of chalkstone literally is limestone, which is pretty easy to, to pulverize. Uh, and he says it's to be beaten and all the groves and images shall not stand and this is all the idols all idols Israel's been famous for idols and still is famous for idols right now Israel is in their land and they're, they're funny people because you'll listen to interviews and they'll tell you basically that they don't believe in God and yet they'll tell you God gave them their land back and then they're mostly practicing atheists with putting a bunch of rules and regulations in there and they're hoping one day to be able to build the temple and have their sacrificial system going again. And God says, you're gonna get your temple and the sacrifices will be restarted. And then Satan will stand in the temple halfway point of the, of the tribulation and say, I am God, worship me. And all of a sudden their eyes will be opened and they will recognize that they have been tricked. 
And then when Jesus comes, they will, they will look at him and whom they have killed. And there's a scripture that says, they will look at him and say, where did you get these wounds? <laughs> From the hands of my, my, fa- uh, my friends. You know, they're not even going to recognize that they're the one that caused these wounds, and yet they're gonna, he's going to be very gentle with them. You know, he's not going to say, well, you did this, and now you're going to pay. <laughs> That's what it says. He's gentle. He's, he's temperate with them. And he says, all the purging will happen. The millennial kingdom, people will be worshiping Jesus. They will worship him. They will rule in a, in a benevolent dictatorship or king monarchy and take care of everybody. Life will be to the place where it says if a man dies at 100 years old, he'll be considered a child. You know, most of us get to 100 years old and we're wishing we could go home. You know, at least that's what I hear from many people. <laughs> You know, and he's going to say in that day, in the millennial kingdom, they'll be considered a child. You know, does that mean they'll have the energy in, in, of a child? Probably. If you're going to live to be six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years old, you better have, be still energetic as a, as a hundred-year-old, two-hundred-year-old. And he says, there's coming that time. It's coming that time when I'm going to, to, to help you. And he's going to remove all the idolatry all the evil. He's going to rule with an iron scepter, which means he's going to keep peace. He's going to keep sin in check, which of course is why people, when they get to the end, when Satan comes out to tempt them, they're going to go, yeah, yeah, we, we want to get rid of this. We, we want to sin. And we've got to understand without Christ in us, the natural tendency is to want to sin. And even with him in us, <laughs> our natural tendency is to sin. It's only when we let him crucify our flesh that we will live the way he wants us to. And when we get to the end of the millennial kingdom and Satan is released, the people will go, yeah, we've been wanting to sin. We're tired of this. this we're tired of this ruler keeping us from having fun. You know, keeping us from doing what we want to do. But what you want is going to destroy you, but we want what we want. And this is, we, even as Christians, do this. God, I want to do what I want to do. And God said, well, it's going to cost you. Well, you know, I just want to have that fun. Now, the, the, the famous last words of our children as they're growing up, you just don't want me to have any fun. No, I know what happens if you do that. You know, you follow that path and it leads to destruction. It leads to harm. Don't follow that path. Well, you just don't want me to have fun. Or you did it and it was okay. Why can't I experience it? Well, I don't want you to do it because I did experience it. And, you know, we look at this and God has put all these up and says, I'm going to take all this stuff away. During the millennial period, it's going to be as close to perfection as you can get in a fallen world because he's in charge. You know, does he take out all the brambles and the thorns? I don't know. People are going to live a long time. You know, the animals are going to be peaceful again. You know, and it's going to be an interesting time. We get to rule with him as Christians. And, and rule with him. Verse 10. Yet the defensed city shall be desolate and the, inhabit- and the habitations forsaken. And left like a wilderness, there shall, be, there shall the calf feed and there shall, the, shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women, 
the women come and set them afire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them. He that formed them will show them no favor. It indicates here to me that during the millennial kingdom, there's no need of fenced cities, no defenses, and that is exactly what it is. God is in charge. But he also says the people have no understanding, no discernment. Why? Because they're basically being forced to be obedient during that period of time. And there will be people that choose to follow God. You know, don't get me wrong. There will be people that follow God and will have their discernment. But there are going to be a lot of people that are just being forced to do what they're doing. You know, a lot of people will say, well, God allows evil, so therefore he is not all-powerful. Well, God allows evil because he gave us the, the free will to, to sin. Uh, and I've told you all, I've actually talked to people, and I'm going, well, you know, if God could stop people from, you know, he could stop evil, and I'll ask him straight out, do you want him to stop evil? Oh, yes, I'd really like to see God stop evil. And go, okay, then I'm going to pray that you cannot make any bad decisions. Well, no, I don't want that. And I go, the only way to stop evil is for each individual not to make a bad decision. Because evil has consequences. Our bad decisions have consequences. And the sad thing, the consequences don't always fall on us. They can fall on anybody. And we were talking about abortion earlier and how many, you know, we abort these babies because people have sex outside of marriage or even inside of marriage and just decide they don't want the kid. And so they get rid of the consequence. That poor child pays the price of the consequence that is brought upon it, upon the person. How many times do we face a consequence that Others pay the consequence for our sin. And it's a sad thing because we see it all the time. Somebody does the sin and somebody else initially pays the price. Now, the price will ultimately be, you know, retribution, you know, retribution from God at the very least at the white throne judgment. And usually down on earth they will get retribution as well. And they may not recognize it as retribution. But we've got to understand God will repay. Every sin will be repaid to the person who sins eventually, even if it looks like they're getting away with it in this world. And this is why we've got to be so careful when we look at people and go, well, you know, nothing bad's ever happened to that guy. You know, look, he's got, you know, millions of dollars. He's, you know, got his big house on the hill and, you know, fame and fortune and, you know, nothing is ever wrong with their life. You know, just look a little closer at their life and you'll find out nothing is what you think it is. Yeah, they may have lots of money. They may have lots of things that look, look good. But many times they're extremely lonely. They're extremely lost and they're no peace. God always has a consequence on this earth, but ultimately at the white throne judgment when they're going to go to hell because and be punished for what they've done. And we, we need to be able to look at that. God has a consequence for everything. Don't ever think people are getting away with their bad behavior. It may look like it. Number one, we're not in their skin. We're not in their shoes. And a lot of times people get saved and they tell you about how bad their life was when, when everybody thought it was good. You know, and we hear it over and over again how people walking away from God suffered when everybody thought everything was going good in their life. 
and we read about it all the time in the paper. So and so committed suicide, or or you know is is addicted to drugs or alcohol because they're trying to escape. And we look at them and say, Wow, what would they be escaping from? Yeah, all the loneliness and, and non-peace of being a separate from God. And we really need to be able to look at this and say, God, I am so glad you give me peace. And I really am. I'm glad that God gives me peace in my life. That I don't have to sit there and go, okay, I need to go home and get drunk tonight so I can forget about my problems for, for a couple hours. Or get, get stoned so I can forget about my, you know. Or maybe it's get so into exercise that I tire myself out so much that I just collapse into bed when I get done. There are people that do that. Or get so busy working, which was my problem in my early 20s. Get so busy working that you don't have time for God or anything. We all have our escape that we try to do, and God says, just trust in me. Rest in me. And very important on that. He says, the women gather up all the briars and burn them. All the wasted worthlessness of our life is going to burn. Even as Christians, if we don't do things with Christ's strength, when we stand at the Bema seat, he's going to burn away everything that's not his. Everything that we do that's not him and not his, his desire will burn, burn up. Anything that's our own works will burn up. And you know, it's an amazing thing that God says, it all disappear. And he's looking to give us rewards. I can't imagine what it would be like to live doing God's way all the time. What, what peace that would be. What joy it would be. And what rewards there will be in heaven for doing something like that. And verse 12, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt and shall gather one by one, O you children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come which were ready to per perish in the land of Assyria and the outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. In that day, <laughs> all right, he will beat out the channel of the river of Egypt or the Nile and it shall be gathered and you shall be gathered one by one. The, the people of Israel are being gathered. You know, God has promised Israel just a small chunk of land in the Middle East, from the Nile River up to the Euphrates, to the, to the uh, Mediterranean, all the way to the River Jordan. Just a small, I was reading about that today in, the, in my reading, and it's like, God, you, have they ever owned all their land? The closest would have been under David and Solomon, and I don't think they owned all the way to the Euphrates at that point in time. Or they might have, that may have been the only time in their history that they owned all the land they were supposed to have. They will during the millennial kingdom when God gives it to them. And he says, I'm giving you everything and I'm gathering you. It's an amazing thing that God is gathering the Jews together into Israel. And you talk to so many of the Jews and many of them are wanting to at least visit Israel. And many of them are looking to want to go to Israel. And I think we're gonna see more and more of that as we see more anti-Semitism starting to develop. There's more and more Jews that are saying, I just want to go to, you know, go to where our home is. Not because they want to settle in a home, but they're just tired of the abuse that they're getting. Anti-Semitism is rising in America. 
again. It's really growing, growing rampant in, in Europe. It's really big in Middle East, but it's always big in the Middle East. It's never, never not been big there. But it is growing everywhere. And we're going to see, I think, an increase of anti-Semitism so that more and more Jews will go to Jerusalem, go to Israel, go to Jerusalem. That they will eventually basically all be gathered there because that's what God said. I'm going to gather you. You know, makes it easier for him to protect them. <laughs> you know, and it's an amazing thing when you look at Israel's history, the miracles that God has done to keep them as a nation. You know, even during the early days in, the four, you know, in, in 48 and thereafter, bombs falling out of the sky and not exploding, uh, missiles dropping out of the sky without hitting their destination, you know, entire divisions surrendering to two or three men because they didn't see two or three men, they saw an entire army. You know, it's an amazing thing when you look at the miracles God has done for Israel. The miracles he's done in making it a place that can produce food for the world, which, come, you know, as a sidebar, will be able to produce plenty of food for them when they're isolated from the world. <laughs> you know, we see God's blessing upon them as he's gathering them together. And we go, God, how close are we to the end days? You know, I would love to see a revival. I would love to see God hold off all of this. But we see everything coming together and saying, God, how much more? Where are you at? We have in, in, in Jerusalem the, the, pro, the processes of trying to build the temple. From what I understand, all the pieces are there. They're ready to build the temple as soon as they get a chance to build it. And who knows what's going to happen when that, hap when, ha when that starts to happen. The world is not going to like it. The Antichrist will have to come around to be able to build that temple. And he's going to have no trouble making peace amongst all the false religions. They're his religions. This is the problem. Once the church is removed, there's no real rules on these other religions. They can allow anything that Satan allows, allows because they're his religions. They can be made into one where everybody's ideas are all equal because they are equal. They're Satan's. The church does not bow because we have God's word. You know, we are called intolerant now because the definition of tolerance has changed. You know, we will not accept that somebody else's beliefs are just as good as ours because we go to God's word and says, this is what God says. And a strong Christian Bible-believing group of people cannot change to match the world because we have to believe what God says. And this is why the church has to be removed completely for the one world religion to totally come together. Because you know, we look at it and say, you know, well, the Muslims will never agree to that. Well, once the church is out of the way, Satan will get the Muslims to believe any, you know, to agree to anything, because it's a false religion anyway. All the other religion, false religions, they'll just you know, say, OK, it's no problem, because their god is in charge. Not that they necessarily recognize him as their God, but their God is now in charge, and things will become at peace. He'll just remove anything that doesn't have that peace, or false peace, the world's peace, that was just false in the first place. And he says, and in that day, in verse 13, it, and it shall come to pass in that day that a great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come that were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcast in the land of Egypt. I do not believe that this great trumpet is the trumpet of, of the rapture or the trumpet. I believe that it is literally God calling his people together because he says they come out of Assyria and out of Egypt. That's his people. 
And so I believe that this particular great trumpet is God just blowing his trumpet, calling the people home. It would be similar to the Feast of Trumpets where God blew the trumpets and the people gathered into to ceremony and they were to come together. If you read about when the people were wandering, there were trumpets that would be blown and when they heard certain trumpets, they all gathered together for their assembly. This is the type of trumpet I believe we're talking about here. Not the trumpet calling the church to, to, to heaven for the rapture, not the trumpet of the last day. It is the trumpet saying, Israel, gather. Come together. And I believe that's starting to happen. It's not the great trumpet maybe yet, but God is saying, Israel, gather. He's putting a desire in his people to return home. He's going to put more and more pressure on them to return home to where they belong. And because they're not going to be welcomed anywhere else in the world. And we're seeing it develop. Again, without a revival, it's going to continue getting, getting bad. There are many churches that believe that Israel is a problem just as much as the world does. You know, and my attitude is, if we really know God's word, that's not something we could be doing. We've got to love Israel. Is Israel perfect? Absolutely not. But they're God's people. Is there a church that's perfect? Absolutely not. But we are God's people. You know, uh, listening to somebody, I can't remember what day it was, but they were talking about how people church hop around because they're looking for the perfect church. Okay, There's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect family. There's no such thing as a perfect anything. We go to the place where God has called us. We minister within that church. We lift up those who have problems because if there was a perfect church, I wouldn't be accepted in it because I'm not perfect. I couldn't be part of a perfect church because I'm not perfect and there's nobody else that's perfect to be in a perfect church. The only perfect church would be Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God in it. Uh, and that would be the only perfect church that we're going to see until he changes us and gives us our glorified bodies. But we look at this and say, what a picture of the end days and what God is doing. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and guide us, Lord. You've shown us pictures of the end days and we see the beginnings of the fulfillment and we just ask you to give us guidance and, and peace in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.